I'm a sucker for a good origin story. And maybe that's why I watch a lot of superhero movies, even though they all seem to have the same plot and the same story and everything seems to be the same from one to the other, just with different characters. I just keep getting drawn back in because I love finding out where things and where people came from. This week, I spent a little time reading about the origin of the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag. And the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag, in its original form, even though there's been some alterations since then, it was originally written by a guy named Francis Bellamy, who was a Baptist minister in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And I was reading some quotes from Bellamy about how he decided to come up with the Pledge of Allegiance. And he said, at the beginning of the 90s, that'd be the 1890s, patriotism and national feeling was at a low ebb. The patriotic ardor of the Civil War was an old story. The time was ripe for a reawakening of simple Americanism, and the leaders in the new movement rightly felt that patriotic education should begin within the public schools. And so Bellamy thought that everything had kind of simmered down since the Civil War and everyone had kind of grown a little humdrum about their patriotism and their national pride. And so he wanted to find a way to inject some pride, but also to inject some unity into the life of the country. Now, there was already somewhat of a pledge in place by another man. And it said, I give my heart, my hand, my country to my country, one country, one language, one flag. But Bellamy said that this was, quote, too juvenile and lacking in dignity, which makes me think that Bellamy was probably a peach to have at dinner parties. But he decided that it just wasn't good enough, and so he wanted to create one, and he put a lot of thought into how this pledge was structured. He said he wanted to have a vow of loyalty or allegiance to the flag, and that should be the dominant idea, and he especially stressed the word allegiance. And beginning with the new word allegiance, he said, I first decided that pledge was better school word than vow or swear, and that the person singular should be used, that my flag was preferable to thee. Now, that did change, and he was really salty about it sometime because he said that it, quote, injured the rhythmic balance of the original composition. Again, Bellamy was a little much. So he said that the words country and nation or republic, he looked at all those different words, finally deciding on republic because he believed it distinguished the form of government chosen by the founding fathers. He said the true reason for allegiance to the flag is for the republic for which it stands. He then looked at some of the things and some of the sayings from the revolutionary and the civil war figures and concluded that all pictured struggle reduced itself to three words, one nation indivisible and finally decided that it was very important to conclude with the phrase liberty and justice because he said those were the basic and undebatable things that made the nation one and so he reduced it all down to these core principles that he believed were the unifying factors of our country and that became the american creed or the american pledge creeds and pledges and mottos, and mission statements, and banners, and flags, these things have been used for thousands of years in an effort to strip away all the things that make us different, all the things that divide us and get to the core of what unites us. Even in businesses, they'll have mission statements and mottos so that no matter who's working there, no matter where you come from, all those differences can be set aside because at the end of the day, it's your job to do this thing. And this is what unites us and this is what makes us one. Now, of course, in Christianity, we have our creeds, we have our confessions, we have our songs. And all of these things don't simply reveal a common ideal 
or even a common belief system, not even a geographic location. But these things that we have, they're a part of our faith, that are a part of our religious rhythms, reveal a common faith, a common salvation, and most importantly, a common Savior and Creator. So last week we began looking at verses 4 through 6. And we looked at the first three things that Paul pointed out that made us one as a church, saying that we are one body, one spirit, and we have one hope. And today we're going to continue looking at Paul's creed here and see as he takes us deeper than any other commonality that we have, any other commonality known to man. And he reminds us that the church is one, not only because of Christ, but that we are one in Christ through the Spirit, according to the will of the God our Father, who is over all and through all and works all things to His good and His glory. And so this morning we're going to look at the next three things that Paul discusses that unites us as one, and then next week we're going to look finally at how God as our Creator and our Father makes us one in Him. But, just as we read last week, let's read together verses 4 through 6 of Ephesians chapter 4. God's word says there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, we thank you for your word as we do every week. And we thank you for the unity of the church and the beautiful picture that we see here, God. And we thank you that we're not here together just because we have some things in common. Because you've given us all things in common through Christ, who is our one Lord, who has brought to us one salvation, one faith, and one baptism, so that we together can serve you, our one and only God, as we wait for the common hope that we have in Christ. So teach us to function like and think like one body moved by one spirit. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The next thing we see in this passage is that Paul tells us that we're made one, that we are united because we have one Lord. That we are one because we have one Lord. The brain is a pretty amazing thing, right? I'm not a neurosurgeon. I don't have a lot of information about the brain, so my knowledge of the brain probably tipped its peak at about fourth grade, but I understand enough from fourth grade to know that our brain is a really powerful thing. Our brain, in comparison to the body as a whole, is still a pretty small part of it, but our brain is the control center. Everything that happens, happens because our brain says so, because our brain sends these impulses and these signals to allow us to move and to allow us to do things, to do the things that are voluntary, but also to allow us to do things involuntary, to do things physical, mental, and emotional. All of it finds its source in the brain. Now, while Paul certainly didn't know all of the inner workings of the brain, you don't have to be Ben Carson to know that where the head goes, so goes the body. And in chapter 5 of Ephesians, Paul begins to talk about Christ as the head of the church. That if the church is one body, then Christ is the head. That there's no hierarchy that surpasses Christ. That what Jesus says goes, that Jesus is the leader of the church, that Jesus guides the church. And wherever Jesus decides to lead and move the church, that's where the church as one body is going to go. 
And one of the difficult things that confronts us in that passage, if we look at Ephesians 5, is that the church is not a democracy. The church is not a republic. The church is a kingdom. And the church as a kingdom has a king. The church as a body has a head. The church as a family has a father. One of the greatest and the most difficult unifying factors of the church with a capital C is that we aren't in control. That we don't make the rules. But the good news about that is that we are intimately and personally and corporately connected to the one who is. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a lot of problems with lordship. I've been very vocal about the fact that my entire life I've been a person who doesn't respond particularly well to authority, and I am seeing what that looks like as this morning my three-and-a-half-year-old screamed at me because I reprimanded her for something. And all of a sudden, I realize exactly how deep my problems with authority goes because they're being birthed inside a tiny version of me. But the idea of lordship is a very difficult thing to swallow, especially, I think, in the context of American Christianity, because we do live in a culture and live in a community that is a democracy. We believe that we are supposed to have a say-so in everything that happens in this country, and if we don't, we become very upset and very angry, and that mentality can find its way into our walk with Christ. It's very hard to submit to Jesus because we're not used to having to submit to anyone. And so lordship can be a very difficult thing for us to have in the midst of our Christian faith. But there's also beauty in the truth that we serve one Lord and that Christ is the head of the church. We're reminded that the lordship that Jesus has is what keeps us moving. It's what keeps us saved. I would venture to say, and maybe, maybe you're just more heightenedly aware of your own body than I am, but until this moment, you have probably not thought about breathing as I've been talking for the past seven or eight minutes. You might be thinking about it now. You might find it hard over the next seven or eight minutes to stop thinking about breathing, but the reality is we don't often think about breathing because our body, through our mind, is designed to control that for us, and so we call it an involuntary action. And our body keeps us breathing so that we don't forget and stop breathing and die. In the same way, Christ, as the head of the church, keeps us breathing. We looked last week at how we have one spirit, that God breathes life into us when he saves us by his grace, but that that breath lives in us, that the Holy Spirit lives in us and guides us and leads us and moves us. And it's Christ, as the head of the church, who keeps us breathing, who keeps us saved, because we don't have the ability or the capacity to do that on our own. The lordship of Christ is what keeps us moving towards that one hope that we have in Jesus. Now the sad reality is, much like breathing, we often don't think about the lordship of Christ until we absolutely have to. You don't think about breathing until someone tells you to think about breathing, or all of a sudden you find it hard to breathe and we start gasping for air. In the same way, it's hard to think about the Lordship of Christ when we're just going about our daily lives because we feel very autonomous. And so it's not until we find ourselves in a very desperate situation where all of a sudden we start maybe negotiating with God. 
where we get ourselves in a little bit of a pickle and our sin finds us with consequences that we can't handle. And so we start saying, God, now I want to live for you as, with not only my Savior, but my Lord. God, I want you to change my life. And if you get me out of the situation, then I promise you that I'll do X, Y, and Z and I'll follow everything that you say. Now I want to be very aware of the Lordship of Jesus. But the reality is the Lordship of Christ doesn't ever go away. Just like our salvation doesn't ever fade and our situations become hard. And so even when we're not thinking about it, Christ is the head of the church. Even when we're not paying attention, Christ is moving us and leading us exactly where we need to go. Christ is holding us together as one body and teaching us to move in harmony and giving us everything that we need to be able to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And he's keeping us saved by keeping us breathing even when we don't notice. Part of being one as the church is remembering that we have one Lord. And by constantly remembering that we have one Lord. Because when we can feel different, when we can feel diverse, when we can feel spread out, when again, as we've talked about, when commonality feels hard to find because the church is such a unique body, when we look around and we feel alone or like we don't belong, we can be reminded that we are all one because we serve under one head, under one king, under one Christ. And we have to remember that daily. Remembering Christ and coming together as one, submitting to his lordship and trusting in his leading. And again, that truth is true for us as Redeeming Grace Community Church, but it's true for all of us as the church with a capital C, for any man, woman, or child all over the world and through the ages who have trusted in Christ for salvation. Now this begins with personal surrender because our salvation begins in a very personal and intimate way. So this idea of living under the lordship of Christ begins with each and every one of us making the conscious decision to be heightenedly aware of the fact that Jesus is Lord and that he is guiding our steps and keeping us breathing and moving us in the direction that we should go. It starts with each and every one of us, each and every morning, waking up and submitting to the lordship of Christ. But it doesn't stop there. Because again, the purpose of all of this is not to be a group of individuals doing a lot of similar things, but a bunch of individuals coming together to be one body. And so both individually and corporately as the church, we have to remember that we are one because we serve one Lord and to remember the beauty of that and daily pray on how we can reflect that truth in our lives each and every moment. To be aware of the Spirit breathing in us, to be aware of Christ holding us together, and to be aware of the fact that if we love Christ, we will follow his commands and do what he's called us to do and live the way that he's called us to live. Because not only are we one body with one hope and with one purpose and with one spirit, but we are one body because we serve under one Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul also continues to say that we have one faith. We have one Lord and we have one faith. In the early 300s, there was a really big controversy in the midst of the church. There was this guy named Arius who had started teaching a false truth about the nature of Christ. And this was starting to spread out of his little domain of Alexandria into other places in the church. And so some of the bishops and some of the people who were leading the church at the time started to say, you know what? We've got to do something about this. We need to get together and we need to talk about who we are and what we believe and what are the core foundations of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so they all met at what we know as the Council of Nicaea. 
And it was a really intense council that may or may not have included St. Nicholas at one point in time hitting Arius in the face. Jolly old St. Nicholas punching a heretic. But it was hard and it was difficult and they had to leave their posts and they had to come together to do this very difficult thing of working out the details of what their faith, of what our faith really entails from God's word. And so out of that was born the Nicene Creed. Some 1,200 years later, a man named Thomas Cranmer was the Archbishop of Canterbury in England, served under two kings and a little bit into a queen. And as he was Archbishop of Canterbury, one of the things that Thomas Cranmer felt very passionate about is that not only should the people of God have a common faith, but that because these churches and the Church of England were spread out all over the country, that it would be really good and really helpful and really important if they could all worship in the same way at the same time. And so Thomas Cramer spent years of his life putting together what's now called the Book of Common Prayer that's still in use in the Anglican Communion today. And the point of that was so that they could be all, no matter where they were, partaking in the same act of worship and being unified. And there are so many other instances of councils and creeds and books of common worship. All of these times when men and women of God have come together to put effort into unifying the church through these creeds and these confessions. And so why? Why would these people go to such great lengths? Why would the Council of Nicaea gather all of these people together in this tense situation to be able to get down to the truth of what matters as a follower of Christ? Why would Thomas Cramer spend so much of his time to give the church some kind of a tool to be able to unite them together? The answer is simply because a common faith matters. Every week, we have a confession of faith after the sermon. And our confessions, whether it's the confession of sin or the confession of faith, are meant for a lot of purposes, but at the core of it, these things are meant to unify us. And so when we get to speak our faith every single Sunday, whether it's a passage of scripture or an older creed or a catechism or whatever thing that we use for our confession of faith that particular week, we are all speaking those things together. It's very easy to feel alone, even in a room full of people. It's very easy to feel like you don't belong. It's very easy to feel like you're the only one going through things. And sometimes, as a follower of Christ, it's very easy to feel like you're the only one who believes what you believe because maybe you go to a job or to a school or to a situation or even to a family where no one else believes what you do and you can feel like you're on an island. And so when we come together Sunday after Sunday, that reminder is there that you are not alone. That we are one body because we share in one faith and we confess the same truths about who God is and how he's expressed himself through Christ and how he moves us through the Holy Spirit and how he's united us together as one church. Sometimes commonality is hard to see, but it can be easy to hear. And so I want to encourage you, if you're a member or regular attender of Redeeming Grace, or if you come back to worship with us at any point in time, that when you hear that confession of faith, sometimes just sit back and listen. Because it can be easy just to talk so loudly and to be so focused on the things that we're saying that we forget that we are being surrounded by other people confessing and believing the same truths. And so when you get a minute, when you think about it, when you're aware of it, maybe speak a little more softly. 
and listen to your brothers and sisters in Christ confess that same truth and bask in the beauty of this great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. And remember that not only are you not alone in this building as we confess our faith, but we are not alone as we confess these truths because we come from a long line of believers in Christ who believe and confess the same things. And just like the writer of Hebrews says that we get to stand in the midst of that cloud of witnesses who push us on towards that same common hope. But this one faith that Paul talks about is even more than just a system of beliefs. It's more than just a faith. That we don't just share. We're not just one because we have some kind of faith because there are plenty of faiths out there. In fact, every single person in one way, shape, form, or fashion has some kind of faith in something. And so the faith that Paul is talking about is very unique. And that's why he points out that we are one because we have one faith. And Paul is reminding the church at Ephesus that they not only share in their beliefs, but they have received as a gift one faith from God that they share the same kind of faith, and that that faith that they share in in Jesus Christ carries with it the gift of salvation. And so we have to remember that, yes, we as Christians confess a certain set of truths, and those things do unite us. But those confessions also reveal a deeper source of our commonality, that our faith is one faith, and one Lord who offers one salvation to his people. And so it goes beyond a common creed to a common source of salvation that, as Paul's already discussed, unites us in a mysterious and beautiful way. Because we have one Lord who gives us one faith. And then finally, Paul says that we have one baptism. The sacraments play such an important part in the life of the church, and we're going to get to experience that this morning with communion. And one of my favorite pictures of unity is the picture of all of us coming to the table to take the cup and to take the bread and to eat the same very small but very important meal together because it reminds us that we come to one table for one purpose. And while there are places in Scripture that Paul mentions communion as part of our unity, in this passage he only focuses on one of these sacraments, and that's baptism. And the reason for that is because baptism is a picture of the essence of our unity. In Romans chapter 6, Paul discusses what this baptism looks like. And in verses 1 through 11, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into death? That's so important. He says, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. 
So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul points out that our baptism is a crucially important part of the unifying factor of the church. And he says that that's true because first and foremost, it unites us with Christ. He says, if we've gone through this baptism, then we have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. And we see that visually portrayed in the dipping under the water and being brought back up because we see this picture of death and resurrection. And so because of that, we're united with Christ, not only in his death, but this promise that one day we'll be united with him in his resurrection. And so in that passage, Paul tells us that baptism reminds us that we are not just under the lordship of Christ but that we have been united with Christ, that we belong to Christ and we belong in Christ. Philip Graham Ryken said that there is no communion of the saints apart from union with Christ. That's where our relationship with the church begins in our union with Christ. Because when we are baptized into Christ, when we are made united with Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus is the head of the church, then by nature we are united to his body. And what we see in baptism is a visual representation of belonging. Because again, sometimes we don't feel like we belong. Sometimes we don't feel saved. Sometimes we don't feel like part of the church. And that baptism is a picture of the fact that you have been brought in from being outside. Like Paul said to the Gentiles earlier in Ephesians, he said, you were once far off, but now you have been brought near. And that's that picture of baptism that once we were all far off from each other, but when we go through the waters of baptism, God has taken something that was once separate and brought it together and made it one. Baptism gives us a shared experience. There's something very unifying about a shared experience. I'm not very good at small talk. In fact, some may say that I'm terrible at small talk. And some may know that I make very awkward conversation and say really weird things if I'm just talking off my head. And so one of the things that I like to do that's a fail-safe for me, that's a protecting thing for me, is just to ask a lot of questions. Because if I can ask enough questions, then maybe I'll be able to find some kind of common ground and some kind of shared experience. And then once I can find a shared experience with somebody, then all of a sudden, conversation is a little easier because you feel united. You feel connected with that person because you've been through something together. Baptism is a reminder that we have a shared experience of Christ. Then when we go through the waters of baptism, we are reminded of what Jesus did inside of us. That as Paul said in Ephesians 2, that, that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but God, with the this incredible mercy and this incredible love that he has for us has made us alive in Christ. But not only do we remember that that's something that happened for us because of our baptism, but we're reminded that anyone else who has gone through the waters of baptism not only has the shared experience of getting wet in front of a lot of people, but also has the shared experience that they too were once dead in their sins and trespasses and they have been made alive in Christ. And so we have that beautiful commonality that God has worked an incredible miracle in our lives. And this shared experience gives us a commonality that surpasses time, it surpasses distance, language, geography, everything that could possibly separate us. It brings us together through those things and teaches us to see other Christians as one, to identify with them because of the common experience that we have in Christ, and even to be able to empathize with them. 
Baptism is a permanent mark. It's a seal that reminds us that we have been saved. And not only that, but that we belong to the body of Christ, that we have been brought in to the oneness that Jesus has for us, and that we are united with each other because we are all united in Christ. And so if you're here, and you've never been through the waters of baptism, and you've never trusted in Christ for salvation, then I want to encourage you and plead with you to talk with me about baptism. I love baptizing people. Talk with Pastor Adam or talk with Pastor David about what it means to trust in Christ and what it means to go through the waters of baptism. We have this awesome little horse trough outside that we love to fill up with water and dunk people in. And so if you want to be baptized, if you need to be baptized, then please don't wait past today to come and talk with one of the pastors of this church about what it means to be baptized, and we will set it up and we will make it happen. If you're here and you have trusted in Christ for salvation, and you have been through the waters of baptism, Remember your baptism. I heard a story once about a priest who, after he would baptize, would take his hand and put it in the pool, would put it in the water, and throw it over the congregation and just soak, I mean, probably the first three rows, unless he had a really great arm. I would assume it would just be like being in an old Gallagher comedy show that the first three rows had to be aware and everybody else probably missed out. But he would just throw the water over the congregation and say, now as you have seen this baptism, remember your own. And our call, our challenge is to remember our baptism, to remember that shared experience, not only because it reminds us of our salvation, but it also reminds us of the unity that we have with one another because we have this shared experience, not simply of the water baptism, but of the baptism that comes through the Holy Spirit when Christ makes us alive and makes us new. We have one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. As a body, the church not only shares in a common purpose, a common calling, and a common mission, but we all partake in one salvation. It comes to us from Christ, who is our Lord, who, as Paul said in Philippians, was in the very nature God, but didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He became nothing. He took the form of a servant. He walked around in flesh and blood for us, and he became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he did that because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so he had to step in and to be our propitiation, to be the one who took our punishment, who took our blame, who took our shame and our guilt. And he hung on the cross and he died for us and then three days later was raised from the dead. And Paul says that God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. And that's the Lord and the Savior that we serve. And he brought to us that salvation. And it's born out of one faith. That's more than just a common set of beliefs, but it's a saving faith that is a gift from God through Christ that is sufficient to make us alive in Jesus and unite us together for now and all eternity. And that promise is sealed by one baptism, giving us all this shared experience and this visual reminder, reminding us that we belong together. And it keeps us moving forward to the hope that he who began the good work in us will complete it one day in Christ Jesus. And so we have a call this morning to cling to our unity as we cling to our one faith, our one baptism, and most importantly, our one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has made it possible.